The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. You know, one of, I, 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 the whole time, you know, I kind of came up in the church when I didn't see a brother who couldn't make it to church for a long time, but he longed to be here because of his illness. And then if I would have seen him walk and step foot in the church, something would have told me that I needed to give God praise. So I just want to take a moment. If you just stand and shout, if you understand that Richard Bush and Janet Bush had not been able to come to church for months upon months, and you see God has done something right there, that should just cause us to praise him, shout his name, give glory. It's not about Bush. It's about what God did through him. We see God do some healings around here. Amen, somebody. Amen. God, you're worthy. You're worthy, Lord. You are. We bless your name. He's still a healer. Amen. He is still a healer. Don't let nobody tell you nothing else. Don't let nobody tell you nothing else. We uh, are in John chapter 1, verse 14. I'd be lying to, to y'all if I wasn't saying if I wasn't excited to be here. It's not. I didn't have a certain amount of coffee. I didn't have anything. I didn't have five-hour energy. I'm just excited to be in the house of the Lord. I'm excited for what we are going through through this, this particular series. Let us go before the word of the Lord. John chapter 1, one verse, verse 14. John chapter 1, one verse, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. The very word of God. As we are going through this Advent series and we have come upon this particular title of going through the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king, it's important for us to know that Advent is about his coming. It is about his coming. I don't want to assume that everyone understands what Advent means, that they have heard this term before. This may be the first time you've heard the word Advent or the first time you worship as a Christian during this season of Advent. So let me allow, allow me to describe this season which informs our worship. Advent means coming. Say coming. Advent means coming. This is what Christians historically have done and used this term for the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. They've worshipped during this time. They worship his coming, his, his already have come, and his coming again. And what we call incarnation is a description of Christ humbling himself to become not only human, but as our passage states, he's wrapped himself in flesh and he has not only wrapped himself in flesh, but he's come as an infant. And he's dependent on his mother for, her, for nourishment. He's learned how to walk and talk just like a human being. He didn't come out as a mystical saying would, would Siddhartha the truth. And he just walked out of the womb walking. He just, he came out and he had to learn how to be a human. And he endured issues like all of humanity would endure. And even though Jesus had come to proclaim that salvation is here, one of the things that we must not mistake about his emphasis is that he's also indicated in his coming that judgment is coming. 
Many times we say this in the Apostles' Creed where he will come again and judge the living and the dead. In fact, John 5, affirms the fact that for the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, the one who is incarnate, the one who was crucified, the one who was risen, the one who will soon come again. So Advent is not about what you just did this past weekend. Black Friday sales. It's not about Cyber Monday. It's not about trying to make sure that you get everything on your list ready. It's not about the tree that you may have just decorated. It's not about the reef that you just put on your door. It's not about the ornaments that you continuously put and create. It's not about the pictures that you draw and color in. It's not about all of the lighthearted traditions that we have come. It's not only about joy, but it's about Christ who was in a manger, a feeding trough, who wrapped himself in this flesh that is broken and weak, feeble and decaying, so that he may bring judgment to bear on what is his and restore what he has claimed. When we understand that, then we can't just walk into Gap no more and just go off on a 60% off sale. We can't just walk in Lame and Brian and Ann Taylor. We can't walk in Gucci and Fendi. I don't know who in here shopping at Gucci and Fendi, but we can't just walk in these places no more and think to ourselves that Advent is only about me. In fact, we should tremble at the fact that Jesus has come and we see the innocence of his infancy. And sometimes we don't recognize that that powerful baby in the manger has come as one that will ride down on a white horse before all to judge all. That should cause some of us to tremble. But he does it and we we will talk about this morning in his office as prophet. Some of us may not understand how Jesus, which theologians called the greater Moses, had come who, which the greater Moses, if you would look at the Miriam effect, that Moses did what? Born in a little bitty old uh, basket, taken in, apart from his family, but was called to deliver a nation. Not only did he deliver a nation, but he spoke on behalf of God. The very mouthpiece of God in which we understand prophets to be. He was a covenant representative. One that would actually see God face to face and interact with God on behalf of the people. If you, if you, if you study their covenant theology, some of y'all may understand that there was always a covenant representative for the, for the people of God. In order to speak to God on behalf of God. But Moses did something no other prophet had done. He seen the face of God. They would say Moses was the friend of God because he was talking to God in the tent of meetings. And so when you see Jesus who comes as the greater Moses, the one who has delivered not just the nation but the entire world, bringing salvation and the kingdom to bear. And the very one who is the covenant mediator, not just the representative, but he could actually mediate between man and God for the issues that man has actually going through on a day-to-day basis. Some of y'all aren't happy about that this morning. Y'all not happy about that you have one that has been spirit anointed to deliver you out of the bondage of sin, out of the bondage of everything that you continue to struggle with 
He's delivered us and will deliver us from the very diseases that we struggle with when he comes again. This is Jesus who has come as prophet, but not only that he's come as prophet, but I love this nativity scene because he says that he has come, the one from the beginning, the very beginning, and Jehovah Witnesses will struggle with verse 1 because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It wasn't a God. We got to get the definite article under control that we need to know that this is who? God. Y'all not with me this morning. Y'all not trying to be with me this morning. I'm trying to help us understand that when Jesus comes as prophet and he's wrapped himself in human flesh, he's not just talking from the mountain to the word. He's the very word that was talking to Moses. I get excited about that because when you understand that he has come as prophet in the very one with divine witness, wisdom, an abundance of embodying that divine witness with wisdom and the fullness of his nature is knowledge and truth that provides salvation for all human beings. That means he's not just like the prophet Isaiah. He's not just like the prophet Jeremiah. He's not just like Hosea. He's not like Obadiah. He's not like Nahum. He's like no other prophet in the fulfillment of the law. He's our God. And certain scholars would say in his role as prophet, what we have to understand, he's not merely a teacher. It's not boiled down to coming and bringing Ten Commandments. It's not boiled down to essentially only seeing what he is, who he's speaking to, and then speaking to another. What he is saying is he's actually come in his word to bring judgment, but the word to bring life and the word to bring fulfillment and the word will bring king, the kingdom of God. It will pardon sin. It will forgive sin. And he is the one that is declaring the word of God, the wrath of God, and it, he has done it from the beginning and he is the end of it. That's something for us to understand because when you realize that when he has pardoned sin and forgiven sin, that's the issue that the people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had an issue with. This prophet who spoke to them was able to tell them and enlighten them of something that they did not know. Oh, is he Elijah? Oh, is he Elijah? Is he, is he just a prophet? No, he is the very God, the God man that so many of us long for. And so when we think about Advent, the implications of Jesus as prophet that will deepen our understanding of Advent, this is what two points I want us to hear and understand. It. The implications of Jesus as prophet will deepen our understanding of Advent in light of our scripture text. What do I want us to know? That the incarnation gives, us, gives our joy purpose. The incarnation gives our joy. When you're singing joy to the world, it gives us purpose. When you're searching and looking for joy, it gives it purpose. When you are mad that, that your team lost, that's not purpose. When you are finding yourself in the consumeristic realities of our society, that's not perfect. When we only make advent about traditions that we create, it's not purpose. As much as that's fun, as much as you enjoy it, um, the, the incarnation of Jesus Christ is the very thing that says to us, we can live. Not only that, but the incarnation displays God's glory and judgment. 
It displays God's glory and judgment. Sometimes we don't look at revelation in its essence in which it shows the beautification of his glory, but not only one that is bringing glory, but one that is bringing judgment. And that is important for us to, y'all may not shout this morning, but that's okay. But it's important for us to know this and not to look at the baby in the manger as some cute baby that is coming to us only to bring salvation, only to answer our Christmas wishes, only to bring, to feed our needs. The greatest need is for you to know and be in hidden as we've already sung in Christ. But do you understand freedom? Can you find, you cannot find freedom without, within this world. You cannot find freedom within this world. Some of y'all say, yes, I can because I have freedom through the Constitution. I have freedom through, no, you cannot find freedom in this world. It can only be received from an otherworldly source. While waiting in the Nazi prison cell in 1943, D.J. Kronhofer teaches us something about Advent. He's writing a letter the week before Advent. And in this prison cell, he writes to a friend. He pins this, a prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things. And it is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be open from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. Shortly after penning these words, the Nazis executed Bonhoeffer. But he was right. The door of freedom for him and for us, beloved, is to know that the door is to still be open from the outside, and that is the coming of Jesus Christ. That we understand that the fact that what we are longing for when you are at the sales rack, what you are longing for when you're asking on the Christmas wish list, what you're longing for when you're hanging up your Christmas tree traditions, you're longing for Jesus to come. You're longing for a freedom out of the bondage of this world where you don't have to think about all of the ailments that are applied to your life. What you are longing for is the anticipation of his righteous judgment, which doesn't necessarily mean doom for believers. We rejoice at the fact that his judgment will come because we know his righteousness will come and we are called his righteousness. And this means that he will restore in a redemptive form all that he owns. And we need to know that this, his, the economy economy of his redemption derives from the reality that he is our prophet and he can declare our freedom with his very word. John's portrayal of this nativity scene, scene gives us a beautiful understanding that the word became flesh. It became flesh and dwelt among us. Quite literally, it means that he took up residence in among us. In the Old Testament, you can see the people of God, that God is tabernacling with the people of God. I made tabernacle. You can make tabernacle a, a verb just to make this point. And you think about the Old Testament, the people of God were, God was with the people and the people of God, when they had assurance and peace and purpose, it was when the Lord was tabernacling with them. Remember when they made that golden calf and they fashioned the very idol that they should not have worshipped? They created this big 
issue in the greatest sin that they could because they worshiped a different idol right after the fact that they should not be worshiping something else. But I believe what was illustrated in chapter 333 was something that was magnificent because Moses, who lays out the tent, who lays out the tabernacle, as soon as he walks out, the people rise. And you read chapter 33, verses 7 through 11. When you see the people rise, Moses goes before the Lord and he talks to the Lord on behalf of the people because God had already declared that he would destroy these people if they would go, if he would continue with them to the land of Cana. He said, I can't even be around these people. I will cast judgment on them, even though I've promised that they would go to the land of milk and honey. Why? Because that place would not be the land of milk and honey without me. They would not be a people without me. And when Moses goes out and he sets up the tent of meetings, beloved, I want you to see something. The people begin to worship when they sing the presence of God. The people begin, the Bible quite literally says this, and when all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship at the tent door. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Now, I just want to infer something. I know Joshua may have been there protecting that nobody else walks in there, but something says to me Joshua may have seen, seen something that longed for him to be there to protect that particular tent of meetings because he seen the very presence of God. What am I saying? What are we talking about? God has not just simply come we have to recognize and realize that we long for the presence to come, that we long for him to be wrapped up in flesh. We long for him to live at our address. We long for him to move on our street. We long for him to sit on our couch. See, this is where Revelation 21 says that, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Some of us, they think like, oh, okay, I'm going to let Jesus squat in my house. A couple months ago, we had, I, had, I was walking, I was taking my wife to work, right? We had one car at the time, and I was taking my wife to work. We all jumping in. It was raining outside. Y'all know, some of y'all know where I live. I live at 3161 Princeton Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38112, okay? If you want to come visit me, stop on by. I don't have no bean pies. I don't have no sweet potato pies, but bring something yourself. But here it is. Here it is. I'm walking out, locking the door. I set my alarm. I did all my things. I go out to the car, and I see a brother walking. On the, I have an empty lot, and then I have a house next to me. I see a brother walking on the side of the, ho- the, the house, the other house, which is empty. Nobody lives there. And I'm just helping a friend look over the house. Well, that, stum- that made me a little terrified because I know that brother was supposed to be over there. So I grabbed my sword. I'm talking about a different sword, but don't worry about that. And I let myself know. I called the police. 911. And I said, there is somebody next door. And Willie, my boy, he lives right next door to me. I said, I need you to go ahead and come over here. My wife was going to be a tad bit late, but I couldn't let somebody just walk into that house and I didn't know what was going on. We had been out of town for a couple weeks, so lo and behold, somebody been squatting in there. We called the police. They go on the church and I said, sir, I seen somebody in the house. He said, well, I don't know. The back door was open. They walk in the house. I said, brother, he is just taking up residence. Squatting. But see, the thing is, that brother wasn't supposed to be there. That was not his residence. 
What I'm trying to tell you, and I believe the Bible is trying to tell you, when the word dwelt amongst us, it took up residence, beloved. It came right into your heart, the address of your heart. And God does not squatting. He actually owns you. See, the difference is, is that he didn't own that house. He was stopping in something that he did not own. And oftentimes I remind you that the devil is trying to steal something that he does not own. And when you understand that God has taken residence in your heart and he owns you, beloved, the things that you struggle with, the self-deprivation that you struggle with, the things that you look at with image management, the times when you look in the mirror and you don't think you're enough, the things that you feel and you judge yourself and you don't recognize that God has created you in his image, in his likeness and made you beautiful, restoring your image, making you somebody that you ought to be, giving you purpose beyond reading some kind of self-help book. He is the divine God that has inspired you, empowered you to live a life that gives him glory. This is, this is, this is helpful for us. This is very, because when the Revelation, Revelation 3 says he's, he's dwelling with man, he is pleased to dwell with man. He wants to be with man. He wants to dwell with his people, and we should desire God to dwell with us. And the practical implications of this are so important for us because the promise of his word to dwell with us is in light of our turmoil. Ah, many times we think that God dwells with us only when we have joy. God dwells us when we have pain. You know, when... You think about many of y'all, let me just be honest, the holidays are not the same for me ever since my mother died 10 years ago. It's just not the same. And I struggle from October to December because December 9th is her birthday. And I'm always reminded of what I don't have. When I look at grandparents, when I look at people that love their grandkids, when I think about us have, trying to have another or having another baby, I think about what we don't have. In the midst of my pain, God begins to remind me of something. Because when I was struggling one day and nobody didn't know that I was struggling, I was just crying to myself and I, I was having a hard time and, and, and it was about three o'clock in the day and I was just like, Lord, why am I struggling so hard? He said, because you hadn't come to me yet. See, sometimes, beloved, in the turmoil of our lives, we don't go to Jesus. We focus on the problems in our home. We focus on the problems with our kids. We focus on the problems with our spouse. We focus on the problems of our trauma. We focus on the problems of our anxiety. We focus on the problems of perfectionism. We focus on the problems of depression. We focus on the problems of consumerism. We try to make ourselves happy. We focus on the problems of the situations, but we don't. Bring them to God. That is simple because he's asked us to cast what? All of your cares. All of your cares upon me. And get this. I don't want you to misunderstand. This is not what perp uh, 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 this is what we need to know that our purpose in life is not defined by how easy life becomes. Because what I learned in life by seeing people die around me, what I learned in life by going through some hardship, what I learned by being around my brothers who have been locked up in prison, life does not stop. Have you ever seen somebody come out of prison and then they've been in prison for 20 years and the first time they've seen an iPhone? Life didn't stop. Have you ever seen somebody grieve 
so hard. They've been grieving for 20 years about something that happened. Life doesn't stop. But you know the promise? God, who is over all of life, is with you. And being with us, we know that we don't need to perform. We know that we don't need to only seek success. We don't only need our kids to just act right. I know some of y'all are like, yes, I do, Mike, because that's the only thing that's going to help me be sanctified. You don't know, you don't only need the right career in your life. You don't need to find all of the right things because you can't hit a reset button on life. It's called endurance. It's called perseverance. It's called keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus so that the very thing is the source of everything. He, he, he being the very source of everything allows us to have purpose, not when things become easy. If things become easy every time, it doesn't seem like life. Some of y'all understand what that meant this Thanksgiving when you had to be around some dysfunctionality around your family. And you had to sit there and say, oh, I'm going to give thanks. But I'm going to a divorce. I'm going to give thanks. But somebody just, as Richard said last week, somebody just commented on my weight. Somebody just commented on politics. Somebody just talked about, but I'm going to give thanks. But the idea of our purpose is not found in everything being correct, beloved. It's found in the fact that even though I can't press the reset button, even though that I can't start over, I can, I can stand on the promises of God knowing that he is with me. So the incarnation displays God's glory and his judgment. It's the, the Fleming Rutledge who says this, that the Old Testament ends with the invocation, the, evoca- the invocation of the wrath of God combined with the powerful image of the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ. The means of grace and the hope of glory says this, I do not need to tell you that heaven is not a place. Heaven is not harps and wings and halos and pearly gates. Heaven is restored relationships. The hope of this future is the hope of glory. Heaven is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. I can only imagine when Mary was looking at Jesus, what she had seen. It was the very hope of glory. It was the thing that we all long for. And if we understand that our future hope is rooted in this deep understanding of a theology of liberation for the poor, of the oppressed, of the captive, of the blind, of the disabled, of all of those that are marginalized, We see that the prophetic words of God become more alive in Luke 4. Because when we see that in the second part of verse 14, it says not only does he dwell amongst us and become flesh, but we we have seen the glory, the glory as only the one and only or the unique one from the Father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus takes up the scroll and he preaches freedom in Luke 4, I want you to hear what he says. That the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim what good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight, recovering of the sight to blind, to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the favor of the Lord. We should always, beloved, always live with the good news bearing this tension that it's this life that we live. It should not be this way. We should hold the good news here, but struggle with the life that it should not be this way. We should know that the good news is that there are future hope to come, that there is liberation, that we will not struggle with sin anymore, that diabetes won't hurt you, cancer won't affect you, lung disease won't affect you one day. But at the same time, there are issues in life that continue to plague us, taint this reality, help help make us feel hopeless. But God is saying there is good news and our future hope is restored in the idea or the way in which we view God's judgment if you see if we understand this then we we realize that there's a restless attitude when we feel overwhelmed with bringing the get news to those who are broken we ought to feel this restless attitude when we see powerless people being corrupted by the, ju- the justice system, the criminal justice system. We should feel this restless attitude when we feel powerless, when we go into particular places or communities. We should feel and wrestle with this attitude of restlessness when we see hopeless generations fall into gang activities. We should feel this level of restless attitude when we see our young women and young men that have been tainted by the streets. We have should feel this unrestless attitude, this anger that should go deep in our hearts when we look at the inequities surrounding our economic system in our society. We should feel this restless attitude bearing down on us when you see kids who are living on EBT, on WIC, when we see people that are struggling in life. You should feel this restless attitude when you see young boys and young girls being bullied at school and told what they're not and being able to not be who they are and they're tainted by life and cannot live life because they they've been hurt so much you all of us all of us all of us should feel unrestless this restless attitude when we see people who have gone through deep trauma of abuse who've been raped who've been molested why should we feel this restless attitude towards it Because we know that judgment will come for the rapist. Judgment will come for the murderer. Judgment will come for all of those who are wicked. But at the same time as God's judgment is coming, his glory is coming. Because Revelation 22, 12 says, behold, I am coming soon. Christ has promised this. Why is he coming soon? Because love, the very thing that liberates us, it bears all things, endures all things. It hopes all things. It believes all things. And when he says that I'm coming, he says that I'm coming because he says that he's bringing recompense with him to repay each one for what they have done. I am the Alpha and Omega promise. I am the first and the last promise. I am the beginning and the end. First John 1 and 1 says it and we're reminded because he is the very word and the word will not go back void. So this liberation and this reconciliation helps us to understand that God's deep love for us, this idea of judgment should not be one that we tremble in fear afraid of God 
but in fear, reverence of God. I remember when I had to do my word study on fear in Deuteronomy, and, and I had to do a whole page, and Dr. J. Scalar said, brother, you got to go back when you do this because you're missing a few things. And what I understood about the fear of God, it wasn't as if parents, I remember, and I struggle with this too, when my son do something wrong, I just want to strike a little fear in him when I look at him, right? I want him to know daddy not playing. As soon as he did it yesterday, we're driving, and fingerprints on the wall. And I looked back on the window, and I just washed the car, okay? I just washed the car. I used to detail cars, so I take pride in it, okay? I just washed the car, and I say, son, are you waiting on the window? Uh-uh. I said, I see fingerprints on the window, son. <laughs> and he was just quiet. I said, listen, I don't want you to fear me. I want you to know that you can receive forgiveness. All you got to do is say, sorry, daddy. He struggles so hard with saying, sorry, daddy. And it may be because the fear that I'm trying to strike him is the wrong fear. But the fear that God wants to strike in us is the right fear that we honor him, that we worship him, that we come to him with peace and joy and gladness, knowing that we don't have to tremble at him because we are called righteous. And that what God had imputed, Jesus had imputed on us at, cross, at the cross of Calvary is to wipe away all of the tears of our eyes to know that when we stand in his presence, that we have joy in the fear that we have for him is to lift our arms and to worship the king who will come again. But this is what I want you to know, that he's not just coming by himself. He's coming with an army. Y'all got to read Revelation. They say he wears a white robe and he's riding on a horse. And as he's coming, he's coming with his boys. And they got fine linen on. And you know what else he says? He says, as he's walking with his fine linen, is an array and his eyes are flame of fire. And his head are diadems. What it tells us is that he comes with his glory. It's okay for us to know that in this season, we can sing joy to the world, but it's not okay for us to forget that he brings judgment to the world. And that's what the table tells us this morning, beloved. The table tells us that he had to die. And when Paul gives the words of institution for the table, you realize that he's saying, and that's why we try to fix the table. Don't come to the table if you don't believe in Jesus. Because it's a table for those that believe that when judgment comes, that it is coming and it will be to the benefit of the people of God. In the sense that God will see Jesus' righteousness. And that is a display for those who declare to know Jesus and to belong to God. As first John had put it, that they're from God, born of God. The ones that he has called and he has elected. This table is for you. And as you drink and as you eat as a family, know that you are liberated. Remember that you are liberated. Know that the very presence of God is a reminder that you ought to worship him for the liberation that he has given to you through the death of his work. Amen, somebody. Let me pray for us. Father, help us to know that you are lovely, that you are holy, that you're beautiful, that you're righteous, and that you are judge. And that as judge, you prophetically proclaim that your kingdom will come. Your will will be done. And that all things will be restored. And so help us, Lord, to worship you in this season.
Help us to focus on you in this season so that all of the distractors will not take us away for what's important. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. All God's people said together, let us continue to worship God in our giving.